0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV, but also MHTV at MHNR. So it's a lot of letters, but what we're um, doing is this is our first broadcast of the MHNR conference. Um, I'll hand over to Vanessa in a second, just so that you can um, start to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and understand quite what it is that we're doing. But for, for those of you who haven't sort of been looking to see how we're going to be progressing over the next couple of weeks, what we're doing is we can't meet and have our, our normal conference. So all the kind of tribes of mental health normally get together. We share all our ideas, our good practice, and we, and we do what we can to move forward as a, as a community of mental health practice. They can't do that this year because of COVID. But it's really important and that we stay communicating with each other, celebrating each other's good work um, and really part of a team because we are part of a team and I think this whole situation can make us feel quite atomized. So what we want to do is come together with you online, uh, us in the, our various parts all over the, all over the country, and actually um, start talking about you know the kind of stuff that affects our hearts, our minds, our practice to do with mental health. So in a second, I'll introduce you to our fantastic first panel, and I hope you give them lots of love. Um, but before I do that, let me just um, hand over to Vanessa, my, my usual co-host, to say um, a little bit about the kind of social media and how you can participate over the next couple of weeks. Nessa?
1: Hello everyone, as Nikki says we're really excited to be hosting um, the Mental Health Nursing Research Conference over the next couple of weeks and um, as Nikki's pointed out we're doing it online but I actually think that's a great opportunity because it means that it's much more accessible this year. Anybody can join in whether you work in mental health, whether you're a researcher, whether you've just got an interest in mental health and you just happen to um, to come across the event we would encourage you to join in um you can do that in one of two ways you can either join in if you're into twitter and um, we usually have the mhtv hashtag so just to say tonight's hashtag is mhnr 2020 So if you follow that hashtag, I will try and keep an eye on the other hashtag as well in case people tweet us there. You can follow the conversation there or you can ask questions of the panel as we go along. If you prefer Facebook or you want to do a bit of both, if you head over to um, the Unite MHNA Facebook page, you just literally need to like the page and the live stream will appear in your news feed and there's a comments box and we would love your questions and comments
0: which we'll feed in as we go along okay Okay, so let me introduce you to our fantastic panel so first up elisa can you introduce yourself tell us a little bit about your work
2: Hello, my name is Elisa Thompson. I'm a mental health nurse uh, and a nurse researcher. I work for Sheffield Health and Social Care, work in the uh, CMHT uh, two days a week and the rest of the week I work in the research department. So there's a little bit of crossover with both roles. Um, my interest is uh, in sort of complex trauma or, or EUPD, BPD type presentations or diagnosis.
0: And this is all grouped together under the, the idea of kind of community health. So can I come to Sarah next? Hi, my name is
3: Sarah Armani and I'm a mental health nurse uh, who works as a senior program manager for the South of England Early Intervention and Psychosis Program, which is sponsored by NHS England. Um, my area of interest has been for, I would say, the last 15 years, uh, psychosis and particularly early intervention and prevention work. And yeah, happy to be
0: here. Thank you. Yeah. And Nick, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
4: Hi there. My name's Nick Weaver, a uh, mental health nurse, uh, also a lecturer at Cardiff University. Uh, my my interests, which really focused on in my PhD thesis, is on uh, recovery in all its many shapes and forms, uh, the impact uh, that uh, recovery implementation or experiences can have on care continuity, and the wider effects uh, that this can have on uh, services.
0: Thank you very much. That's fantastic. So let me hand you over now to the person who's going to be in charge of today's session, uh, a fabulous, fabulous uh, guest presenter. Mick, can you introduce yourself?
5: Thanks, Nikki. Um My, my name is Mick McKeown. I'm a Professor of Democratic Mental Health at the University of Central Lancashire. And my little joke that's probably a bit uh, careworn now is if you find any Democratic Mental Health, can, can you let me know? Um, now. We've probably all listened to everyone's presentations and the, the fine bunch of presentations that that we've had. And I think there's, there's a few sort of common themes there that we'll maybe pick up later. But maybe we'll start with Elisa. I, I detected a little bit of discomfort at the start of your presentation with the sort of terminology that we have in clinical mental health care and maybe some of the labels that are attached to the, the client group that you're trying to support. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, when I actually submitted my abstract initially, I am um, a clinician and I was using quite a lot of clinical and diagnostic language. And um, I got some feedback from the conference to, to sort of challenge that a little bit. And then I did uh, discuss that with some of my peers and uh, some people that, who use services. And I mean, I'm, I think when you're a clinician, you get drawn into that use of language, don't you? Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, discussing that with with my peers and and with people who use services, it made was quite clear to me um, that, that the diagnostic language. is there's some challenges, there's some difficulties and it doesn't, I don't feel like it really ac- accurately sort of represents the experiences of people who use services. And, and, and I sort of, I'm aware that I can get drawn back into, to that, to that language, but that um, throughout my, my, my scoping review, um, the, the finding sort of um, signified that that language is used very heavily and, and people who use services probably don't feel comfortable. And there's quite a lot of, you know, language of power to, to, in, in, Terms. Um, and that the, there's it's quite difficult really for, for people who navigate those services and use those services to sort of um, have their own identity really outside of the, you know, the terminology and that comes along quite rigid pathways and stigma and things like that. So I think that very much became a part of my, my review, really, looking at the language that we use in clinical services, but also that's used really heavily in research. And, and you know, maybe we need to look at, look outside of those diagnostic labels and, mm. and what are the actual experiences behind um the presentations that
5: we work with. Yeah, thanks Elisa. I mean there's maybe a little bit of an irony as well isn't there? I mean how do you go about doing a review if you don't rely on the terminology that's that's already out mm. there?
2: Oh yeah, I mean I did. So in my inclusion and exclusion um, criteria, I, I use the, the terminology so EUPD, BPD, uh, CPTSD. Um, but 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 because obviously I wouldn't have picked up any literature. But then in my sort of discussion, I was thinking about how can we sort of unpick some of this language and and moving forward research. So how can we think about you know working outside of this language and you know is it possible and what how can we bridge the gap really between sort of rigid diagnostic clinical services uh, and and people who. Experience who use services and the language they would prefer to identify
5: with. You know? It sort of struck me as well, and I think this is where there's a resonance with some of the other um, presentations. That one of the ways you, you've detected the shift is towards the language of complex trauma uh, rather than the previous diagnostic labels. And you also acknowledge that you had some concerns about trauma that's caused in services, so mm. services that do harm. And I think there was a little bit of that in Nick's presentation as as well. So maybe try and bring Nick in here.
4: Yeah. Um, I I think, well, picking up on that kind of perspective, um, one of the sort of conclusions that I made uh, from my research was very much the idea that um, recovery is, is seen as a sort of generally benevolent thing, a sort of panacea for all ills Uh, no matter how poorly or well it's implemented. Um, And my study was qualitative analysis and I did discourse analysis. And uh, one of the key themes that was generated in that analysis um, was that there were competing versions of recovery, uh, that participants had uh, lots of different versions of recovery, uh, lots of different ideas and agendas about what recovery might be. Uh, And I think uh, David Pilgrim has called recovery a polyvalent uh, concept, uh, and uh, it can, in fact, mean all things to all people. So there was a difficulty there with with what uh, recovery is, and uh, I connected that with uh, service fragmentation and uh, discontinuities of care. Uh, which uh, service users uh, talked about. This was in Wales, in Welsh services, in the context of the implementation of the Mental Health Wales measure, which is ostensibly uh, about recovery implementation. And it seemed that whilst one might think sort of instinctively recovery is a good thing, uh, for firstly, having lots of different types of recovery uh, can actually be uh, associated with uh, fragmentation of services and potentially lead to... Uh, discontinuities of care, so that was one of my, my, my arguments. But the other key arguments that I really brought in was really building on the uh, the insights of recovery in the bin. I think it was in this conference last year, uh, and the idea of neo-recovery. Uh, and I think Angela Woods in the paper has, has spoken about, uh, written about, uh, top-down recovery, uh, which is a sort of parallel uh, term for a similar concept, and, and neo-recovery really is uh, the idea that uh, there is a a brand of recovery, particularly implemented in in policy, which is uh, very, very heavily influenced by neoliberalist uh, ideology. So neo and recovery brings those two terms together. And neoliberalism is is really a a very dominant ideology today, but broadly speaking, it has to do uh, with uh, free market principles and, and freedom, which is really understood entirely in terms of uh, in terms of money. And, uh, of course, there are a lot of uh, people will argue, well, actually, um, neoliberalism doesn't create true freedom. So I, I applied that, and, and Recovery and bit have applied that to the understanding of recovery, and that this top-down neo-recovery really uh, is, is aimed at uh, getting people back to work, getting people to be positive, to recover. Uh, and there's no freedom to to, uh, to to not recover. So it becomes almost a form of a coercive thing, uh, but in a much more uh, subtle way than the sort of traditional forms of coercion that you would find with uh, institutions. Uh, and so so near recovery uh, was, was in many ways could be seen as a as type of recovery which is uh, sort of hoisted onto service users and can become burdensome. And it's certainly a narrow uh, interpretation of recovery. And, and I think that's the, the narrow interpretation of recovery with the measure I argued was the idea that service users should be uh, really discharged to primary care to the GP and uh, that they should be self-sufficient and uh, stand on their own two feet. And, and I argue that that was a, a form of near recovery and actually uh, quite a, a narrow uh, and a reductive understanding of recovery and, and not necessarily a good thing, and certainly not uh, reflective of the, the broad palette of, of what uh, recovery can be for the person with mental health issues.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots there, Nick, there's, uh, I think we could, we could talk all day on this, couldn't we? I'm, I'm sort of thinking about how we might strike some balance between a sort of oppressive neoliberalism that shreds what we would recognize as public services and the welfare state and the possibly more authentic uh, desire to actually help people who who are in mental distress and maybe to do that at the scale of the state so that people don't slip through the net and at, at that point i want to turn to sarah because may sarah's presentation was about the use of mobile phone technology and i think maybe that technology speaks of both those directions at once, you know, is it a way of keeping people under the control of statutory services or is it in some way more emancipatory, giving people more say in their own lives? So where would you come in on those sorts of arguments, Sarah? Um, thanks,
3: Mick, I think it's really' it's it's a really good question. I think um, in the study that um, was led by Professor Sonia Johnson and her team at UCL, which studied the My Journey app, which I developed in 2012, there was um, a sort of semi-structured interview elements to it for the qualitative results. So participants were interviewed to to kind of share their views. And it was uh, 50-50 actually. Some participants kind of felt really wary about putting their data into a mobile device and um, not necessarily to do with their paranoia, but really just worried about what might. Happen to that data in future, Um, whilst the other half were actually thinking, yeah, this gives me more power because instead of the clinician writing my care plan, in their words, with their kind of lens, I can write my own symptoms and my plan and the things that are important to me, and I can drive the care that I receive by doing that. So it was a a mixture, actually, of, of both those kind of views.
5: Yeah. I mean it it reminds me of a, a little piece that, that Diana Rose, the survivor researcher, wrote mm-hmm. at the height of the COVID um uh, pandemic. And she was sort of saying that um most of the time you, you want to escape the clutches of services, but when you know you can't have them, you, you maybe miss some of these people as well. And a, a, a colleague of mine at University of Central Lancashire, a fellow called Nadine Geray, he did a um Similar study to yours, Sarah. And one of the little quotes that um, came out of the, the service users who'd been using this app was, it's just like having me care co- coordinated in my pocket. And I thought that was quite neat. And it was sort of counterintuitive for me because I I was thinking, oh, this is very big brother, isn't it? Is You're getting tracked by your mobile phone and all of this. And yet for, for those people who cooperated with it, it wasn't at all. They didn't have you know those those thoughts about it. But I suppose we could we could all have a think about what what are the issues in in services across the piece that either promote cooperation or, or refusal to cooperate? Because I think there's a there's a little resonance on all, on that binary across all the the presentation. So maybe come back to Elisa, um, and maybe I this coalesces around the the you know the labels and how they might alienate people. It may be other aspects of. Of services, but in in your experience or in your review, did did you find anything that would help us make more sense of cooperation and refusal in in contemporary care?
4: Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it sort of comes down to sort of what, how, how helpful people find services. So in my review, um, people with autistic experience generally have um, different needs to people who don't or who are sort of more high functioning, for example, or don't have an autistic experience and that services aren't really geared towards uh, their needs. Uh, and then unfortunately, you know, people trying to use services are then don't don't feel able to to, to engage in the way that, that sort of we want them to or they feel able to, and this can get quite of Sort of com- com- complicated. There was some suggestion in the, the literature as well that people with autism, uh, particularly females, are regularly diagnosed with BPD or EUPD. Um, and that again, these are particularly quite, quite rigid pathways, and there's quite a lot of stigma attached within, you know, within staff as well to those labels. So, so those young women, for example, uh, you know, d- weren't experiencing a service that was helpful to them, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, quite understandably, you know, resisted that services. And their family found that, you know, that they those labels didn't really adequately describe um, the experiences uh, of those people, and that, it's, that what was offered to them wasn't wasn't helpful uh and um the the way they people with autistic experience may feel that they need to communicate was labeled or misinterpreted as something else under the guise of for example bpd or eupd so i think going back to sort of what you said the the, the resistance there is around you know it's not actually helpful people don't feel listened to people don't feel understood and understandably they, they push back against that and, and what can we do really to sort of Betterly, better <laughs> formulate and understand people's difficulties rather than sort of putting them into a box that doesn't really sort of, you know, fit with with their
5: experiences. Right, thanks. And I, I, I don't suppose that's unique to um, to the client group that, that, that you're working with either, Elisa. I mean, maybe if I come back to Nick, um, I mean, I, I think one of the strengths in your presentation, Nick, is a heavily sociological, some very sort of dense mm. theory there and, and a very, very neat, I think, Interweaving of, of different theoretical perspectives. If we were to take a, a sociological look at some of these issues, what sort of sense would make of this idea of say service users, service refusers? What's the place of recovery in the bin in a in a wider discourse of critique of, of care?
4: Um, I think um before sort of make a sort of theoretical point, I think it's always helpful to sort of ground things uh, in in the real world. And, and and my colleagues presenting here certainly their research is that. And and so I'm reminded of of one of my participants, uh, and his pseudonym was Dylan, and uh, he was an expert patient, uh, a service user, uh, and also uh, he provided uh, recovery training for other service users. But he had. Almost a, a sort of a cynical attitude towards services, uh, and actually said that uh, what's probably best to do in, in his interview he said is to pay lip services uh, to uh, to services and and basically find your own way of recovering. So so perhaps that that ties into this idea of, of refusal. Um, at the same time, I, I think it is true to say that in in some cases uh, people did find services um, helpful. Um, and so just looking at a sort of sort of theoretical perspective, um, because I was going down that, that line, I, I was able to look at uh, grassroots recovery and, and near recovery and actually almost try and say, um, well, you can, there are benefits with both. Uh, and actually, um, just looking at it from the point of view of co- complexity theory, if you have perhaps too much of an emphasis on grassroots recovery, that can generate complexity. So, you just have so many different ideas of what recovery is. It's, it, can, it can create a very escalating, uh, complex situation in services. But, conversely, uh, an overemphasis on, on near recovery, uh, and that I brought in the perspective of Jurgen Habermas here, and the idea of colonization of the life world. So, the idea of recovery uh, being colonized, um, I specifically attached to the idea of, of colonization of the life world, and that the that near recovery really comes from the, uh, the systemic sphere or of uh, the sphere of strategic action. And that this can also be uh, a factor for complexity, which is so much the case when lived experience is turned into something which is systemic, you only have to look at the global financial markets and the complexity there. And so really, that I, what my, one of my key arguments was that this polarization either to grassroots recovery or to near recovery. Uh, can be problematic in terms of complexity. So, so why not um, offset the two trends against one another? Which is that near recovery, in a limited way, not allowing it to become dominant, uh, can actually uh, set parameters for grassroots recovery. Similarly, uh, grassroots recovery is, is allowed, is encouraged, and allowed to flourish, and uh, near recovery isn't allowed to become overly dominant uh, as, a, as a factor. So I, I think that that was largely a sort of critical psychiatry uh, perspective uh, as opposed to anti-psychiatry, which argues against, you know, completely we shouldn't have uh, medicalization uh, or, or neoliberal elements at all. But really uh, accepting that um, there has to be a degree of uh, systematization because society is so complex, and I think Habermas argues that, uh, but, but not allowing that to become uh, dominant uh, near recovery should not become a dominant factor, uh, and uh, and so so I was really arguing for that for that kind of balancing of grassroots recovery and, and near recovery as, as an over overarching strategy.
5: I love that answer, and I think I think Habermas. What I take from him is this atavistic um, rejection of the idea of dominance, and and how can we work our way around it and get to maybe like a better world that that doesn't have a tendency to to, to dominate. I think it's also quite neat that the the communicative approach, this is sort of communicative rationality, is yeah. averse to binaries. So there's there's a, a number of binaries here that, that that we're trying to sort of escape in in a complex mm-hmm. world, and and that it would be daft to think that you know it, we, given the complexity of mental distress, there'd be any one set of solutions that that, that saved everybody. And I think this. But it brings me back to, to Sarah's work, so I think one one of the binaries that's out there is this, and again, it's a sort of pivots on a sort of neoliberal critique, is that the idea of self help has been completely co opted to to neoliberal ends, and that um, you know if, if we looked, for instance, at, at proposed digital solutions, they they tend towards a sort of privileging of Autonomous people who, who help themselves, and that, that then, like Nick has told us, is it can be an ex- a, a justification for um, retracting services. So, but I don't think that's where it's necessarily at with the app. So, so w- would you like to come in there, Sarah, and, and maybe develop a defense of the app that <laughs> self help? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is
3: a risk here, isn't there, of um, using this. Uh, new tools to justify excluding people from services so they can do the very opposite of what they intend, which is to help people manage when they're not um, in, in a clinical setting. Um, the study that um, I I and others worked on with this mobile health app didn't actually look at that specifically. But what I will share um, is is the fact that psychosis services have been subject to targets since 2016 to see people within two weeks for assessment and deliver nice interventions. And the third bit um, was also to extend the age range from the original 14 to 35 to 14 to 65. So what we expected from 2016 till now would have been a 35% increase in caseloads. But what's happening is actually the opposite. Um, The caseloads are actually reducing so this is, uh, for me, I think it, it talks to a bit of what you and Nick were talking about with them, um, the sometimes misuse of the word recovery. Um, so almost imposing our views on people to say, actually, I think you're, you're okay now, you, you can go. Um, you don't need us anymore. And I, I do wonder, and there's no evidence that, that I can pull on whether that is actually happening with um, early intervention and psychosis services, because the primary aim now is to see people very quickly within two weeks from they're referred, but nobody's checking about what's actually happening thereafter.
5: So thanks, Sarah. I, I mean, I think, I think we're going to have digitally supported services, whatever happens. So I think maybe where this conversation takes us is can we can we have our cake and eat it and have the ones that are most in tune with what people want. And maybe, maybe one of the things that's wrong with mental health care presently and in its near past or maybe in its entire history has been a complete absence of choice of alternatives to sort of physical containment and medication, maybe a little bit of psychotherapy thrown in if, if you're lucky. Um, but even that, virtually sort of homogenous these days, not, not so much choice around the edges. So maybe the proliferation of the digital, as long as it doesn't squeeze out the relational, I, mean, I think that's a big one, um, is a way of accessing more of what people might want, or different things that suit different people. Now, Nikki has been giving me a prompt to say that we've got some questions coming in um, via yeah. the, the interwebs. So,
0: yeah, thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for, for, for the students who are watching along and uh, getting involved so obviously what we're doing tonight is this is um uh, in place of our conference but hopefully you'll be watching this seeing what the presenters here are doing and actually deciding in a, in a year couple of years maybe even now you can team up and actually start to put something in for next year so what we'd really love to see is as many different people getting involved in sort of generating knowledge and understanding as possible so i actually have an, a ton of um student questions i said could you send me some and you sent me a lot so thank you very much um and obviously, I think some people have been watching your videos as well, presenters. So thank you very much for some questions that definitely speak to uh, some homework being done. I know I'm shocked too. So <laughs> um, There's a lot of them. So how about I read them all out and then we go through them slowly and decide who wants to answer what. So one person wants to know, why do people resist services? It's a Good question. Um i'm going to rephrase this because the word banging on about has been used but i can see where they're going so basically what's what's near what's neoliberalism everyone keeps talking about it what's it got to do with health um somebody wants to know what discourse analysis is i think that's coming straight at you nick (laughs) um and also um complex trauma so i think maybe this might be one for alice talking about isn't isn't all trauma complex Hmm. Okay, so should we go back to the start? Maybe why do why do some people resist services? Because I think when you're first starting off as a student nurse, you're trying really hard to do the right thing. And it maybe feels a bit baffling that people maybe are less enthusiastic than you are. So anyone who
4: fancies that one? I mean, I, I could just start by saying that there is this um, whole concept of iatrogenesis, which is the idea the notion that a treatment um, can actually do harm, um, and this there seems to be a real sensitivity to this uh, within mental health, uh, where arguably the use of uh, psychopharmaceuticals, um, ECT, all of which are treatments, um, you know, coercive uh, force, all all of these ways of dealing with people who are struggling with mental health issues, um, actually. Um, can do more harm than good. Um, and, and certainly even in a more subtle way uh, today, uh, there's certainly among some service users and service users that I that I interviewed uh, is, is is a sense of actually wanting to avoid services uh, and that actually that services might actually be problematic uh, and actually hold them back uh, in some way. Um, and and so That might be a a reason why people would want to resist services because uh, they they may not actually have um, a good good effect as perceived by the the, the service user. Um,
0: Hmm. Yeah, so not everything works out. Did either of you guys want to add to that, Elisa or Sarah? Yeah, I'd add. I think
3: also there's something about um, how mental health services are reported on in the media or or what we see from well as as. Uh, as young as or as soon as we can read or watch TV, really, the stories that we read or see are usually something that's gone wrong in mental health services. So for those who are new to services, if that's all they know or that's what they're gleaning is, is going to be their experience, and it shouldn't be that surprising, I suppose, that some people might be reluctant. And then I suppose there, there are also some groups... Who have mistrust of, um, I suppose, mental health services because of historical things. I'm thinking, in particular, black and ethnic minority groups, and the role that psych- the dodgy role that psychiatry and psychology has played in actually discriminating those groups might also lead to some reluctance to engage.
0: Absolutely. So, isn't all comp- isn't all trauma complex? So, have a go at that.
2: Uh, yeah, um, that's a really good question, actually. And I don't know how well I'm going to be able to answer that. Um, <laughs> so when, when I'm talking about complex trauma, I guess it's in the sense of people who've had trauma um, and then may, the, again, thinking about iatrogenic harm and their, their engagement with services may then... Um, sort of lead to some re-traumatisation. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the people I work with, uh, the, the colleagues that I work with, most of the colleagues that I work with are very, very kind, caring. They want to help people, but the way services are structured and possibly like a, a lack of evidence base in, in some areas may mean that we, you know, actually what we're doing is making people feel worse. Um, in terms of complex trauma, people who are, are diagnosed with sort of EUPD, BPD, personality disorder labels, they um, a better way of sort of um, conceptualising that, uh, I feel, is is com- complex trauma. A lot of people who experience mental health, schizophrenia, bipolar, have a, a, there is a trauma history behind that. Um, in terms of sort of EUPD, um, the, the the complex trauma is is has. Again, I'm trying to say this in a way that isn't sort of like, you know, stigmatising, um, yeah. that may have had an impact on someone's personality development, which then has an impact on their ability to navigate services as they are, if that makes sense. So that for mm. me, that is my understanding of complex trauma, um, something that lies behind the EUPD, the PD type diagnosis. Another way of talking about personality disorder is emotional sensitivity, um, which mm. I think is, um, is is a really good way. Um, I think just to move away from that disorder label to recognize that the, the experiences and the, the traumatic experiences people have, have, have uh, endured really rather than blaming them for the way they present and behave if that makes sense.
0: Well, you're making a really valid point that really links back to what everyone else has been saying, isn't it? And in our everyday lives, we understand that if we call people names, they won't want to hang out with us. <laughs> in our professional lives, we do all the time. <laughs> like, I seem a bit off. It's odd. Um, I suppose uh, discourse analysis, are you feeling up to that, Nick? What is it um, and how do yes. you make information out of it? <laughs> well,
4: I, I mean, it's probably... Slightly more interesting, just very, very briefly, just to tell the story of why I, I ended up doing a discourse analysis, why I chose to do it. Um, I, I was originally going to do thematic uh, analysis after Brown and Clark, um, and really felt that I, certainly as part of this qualitative research, that I wanted to draw on a major analytic tradition. Um, and so I looked at various uh, analytic traditions, grounded theory, conversational analysis, and um, really. Uh, Adopted uh, discourse analysis because of my interest in in constructionism uh, as a philosophical perspective, which is kind of the idea that we we construct meanings and uh, realities uh, in our everyday uh, talk and, and language and meaning making activities. And discourse analysis, so I was very interested in that perspective, really in constructionism, and, and so was my my supervisor, Professor Michael Coffey, and and. Um, and discourse analysis really, really fitted um, with that, and, and it's really, it's really um, uh, basically a, a way of understanding how uh, people use language, uh, use talk, um, to to construct uh, perspectives uh, and, and meanings uh, of the world. Uh, and their own positions in relation to that, that can have political ramifications as, as with Lacau mouffes uh, discourse theory and Fairclough's critical discourse analysis. Um, but but this, this really helped me to with my analysis of, of recovery because I was able to draw on Laclau-Mouffe's concept of a floating signifier and actually say, well, as well as David Mulgram saying that recovery is a, is a polyvalent concept, or well, maybe recovery is a, is a floating signifier. It's, it's a sign that hasn't had its meaning fixed and actually there's a political process of different groups and uh people struggling to, to to fix the meaning of recovery particularly uh neoliberal forces uh policymakers, uh and and this this uh, co-option and appropriation of recovery uh be- becoming a form of, of, of potentially of, of oppression
0: uh so you almost saying, it's, it's there's, there's something about who owns language then, isn't there? Who, who gets to define their own experience? And this links very much into what Elisa and Sarah have both been saying, isn't it, about if you can describe your illness and say what your experience is, even if you don't want to say that it's an illness, if you want to say that it's a life experience or a way of understanding life, that may, yeah. may make you feel differently about, and also change your possibilities in the way that you can see your future. Whereas if you're named and controlled by maybe a force outside of that, you have a very different kind of experience. And this idea about floating concepts as well is really useful because we see this all the time in mental health, doesn't it? Language goes and comes back. And, And so I think this is something that maybe students experience is that one word tends to mean all kinds of different things. And it can be quite confusing, I think, if you're trying to understand. Whereas if you understand actually some words, you know, It's in whose interest that these words float around. It's in whose interest that these words are defined. and It it gets to be, you get to start to think about what you're doing instead of just doing the tasks one after another. I think that's really, really interesting. This analysis
4: really, really Mm. tackles that head-on, the way in which language can be used uh, politically Mm. to to empower or disempower. And Mm. I think in in George Orwell's 1984, that was sort of one of the final clinches for oppression there was the, the takeover of of language itself
0: absolutely so i
4: certainly have that uh, view that, that the control of language is is, is particularly important i think oh, you're yeah. setting
0: up a reading list as well for us there nick the um, conference reading list now start with 1984 strangely prescient in today's yeah. society <laughs> depressingly so so and it kind of takes us around to one more thing and then i'll hand back over to mick obviously which is who wants to have a crack at why should we care about neoliberalism if we're health workers what's it got to do with mental health
4: well, I, I think, I think neoliberalism is tremendously important, generally speaking, for anyone living in, in modern or late modern society, because it is the, the dominant ideology, uh, and it affects everything. Uh, and, and it's very helpful to understand that, to understand what's going on politically. Neoliberalism, as, as I think i said before, is, is the, the promotion of, of the market, of market systems, and uh, as, as the supreme um, system of, of power and the functionality of society, and it has quite a Reductionistic understanding of the, the human being as as really a self interested agent uh, making choices, uh, potentially greedy choices within that system. So it's highly controversial, um, and it affects healthcare greatly. I, I believe, and and there are there are many instances of that. Um, just focusing on, you know, our area of expertise, mental health. Um, there's, there's a lot of evidence. Um, that the recovery, recovery implementation, and policy-based recovery implementation um, is uh, is tremendously influenced by neoliberalist ideology, and and arguably the, the mental health Wales measure in in Wales uh, is is one instance of that uh, because of its emphasis on shifting people to primary care um uh, which which and and the the over, overall context of austerity which has affected the, the whole of the, the uk over the past decade mm.
0: okay either of you guys want to add to that um i
2: would just say i think um when i started my career in mental health um i, I had a particular sort of view around sort of social just, justice and uh and and things and then and and then as i sort of progressed uh, uh particularly in the chg i guess um the language of neoliberal and the ideology it does impact on your clinical care um and there's a lot of pressure and I think it be really important to be reflective of that so there's a lot of pressure particularly on the CMHT to get throughput and caseloads to get people discharged um moving through services because there are sort of constraints on um on money and funds and this will never go away and and one of the reasons why I'm really interested in research is how can we kind of work in between that that this pressure on money and the neoliberalist ideology is never going to go away but but how can can we sort of um, make services more effective so we, we can then rather than just sort of pushing people through, through, through for services and say you know you're better you're feeling better and um, just don't worry about that just just sort of get through that we can actually make services more effective so we can sort of offer mm. a, a balance really
0: there yeah because it can always feel like we're punishing people for recovering so as soon as someone starts to feel better we just withdraw all the services kick them out the door and then wonder why it does not work out and and I'm happy to say that and people on Twitter are actually joining in answering the questions now. So you have some reinforcements, panel. Um, we have someone When in, in terms of the question, why do people resist services? Um, oh, Randy has written in, Um, they're afraid they'll feel weak or they may get into trouble for feeling a certain way. And I think you can understand why people have that feeling. It depends where you live and how you were grown up. Absolutely. Well, done. thank you very much for that. Really appreciate that. So um, i am hand back over now to uh, Mick. Don't okay. yep, look shocked.
5: <laughs> I, think, I think Vanessa wants to come in as well. But I mean, I just wanted to roll back a little bit. You know, the yeah. bit about why people refuse services. I think the elephant in the room is compulsion. So when you don't give people any choice about services, particularly forced treatment, I think that's a big reason why people get alienated and turned off by even the nice, caring people. And most of my colleagues are nice, caring people, but they're also the people who put hands on people, inject people when, when they are literally fighting to to not have it. So I think, I think there's obviously much more to it than that, but, but I think that's a, a good starting point for thinking why, why people might um, begin to be alienated from services. And I think, I think those processes do us harm the people who work in services as well, and that probably needs more time. I think one of the questions is about neoliberalism, wanted us to actually say what it is. So just for the sake of it, it's a political economic doctrine that came in in the late 1970s, and anyone in this country would recognize it as associated with Thatcherism. It was about the privatization of the welfare state, deregulation, so less rules about things like safety. Um, And it also ushered in a form of managerialism that got called new public management that people have mentioned obliquely sort of things like targets and all this sort of stuff, rather than relationships. And a little anecdote, the very first country in the world to operate a neoliberal regime was the Pinochet regime in Chile. And that was actually (laughs) Thatcher and Reagan. And it was actually a huge natural experiment to show that this sort of political economy could work and by work, I mean work on its own terms, because a hell of a lot of people got put out of work. But I'll stop there. because I could go on all day. But if anyone wants to know why we might object to neoliberalism, it started with one of the most nasty regimes in the world, which mm. tortured people, including nurses. So, <laughs> I could go on for a moment. Um, so-
0: Vanessa's got a question for Elisa, I think. I saw it in WhatsApp. Mute myself. Yeah, no,
1: um, I'm just interested um, in asking because it might be useful um, in terms of people who are listening as well, because we've talked about complex trauma um, and you made some really important points there. So I'm thinking linked into that. um, Where does that fit in terms of services being trauma informed?
2: Um, I think uh, I think services are trauma informed, but I think people. I think for me, and I don't know if this answers your question or not, that the trauma that people have experienced, the trauma that our patients, clients have experienced, gets lost in the idea that someone has a disorder, someone behaves in a certain way. They may. Um, and again, I, I, I don't want to say this in a kind of a judgmental way of my colleagues, because I, you know, I'm a part of this service that really struggles to offer a service to people um, who, who have a traumatic past. That, that that gets lost behind sort of a lot of the difficulties, interpersonal difficulties. People might be seen as manipulating, trying to control services, uh, trying to control what's going around them and and, and thinking about sort of the, these behaviours <laughs> that, that people sort of experience are actually... To do with people's ability to survive, um, quite sort of challenging sort of past and, and surviving through abuse, adversity, and then they sort of meet services, and that those that sort of interaction continues. So, so we're thinking about sort of services that that are that that remember that people have traumatic pasts. So mm. I, I, I worry that, that those things get lost. Does, does that answer yeah. your question?
1: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think it links to a lot of what Sarah was uh, alluding to earlier about some of the sort of social inequalities and injustices because. Mm about us all being aware of our privilege isn't it because um we might not think that we're not acting in a way that's trauma-informed but Mm -hmm. you know just simply speaking in a certain tone of voice to somebody who's you know experienced coercive control or Mm -hmm. um you know any other form of trauma um can be really triggering for people can't it and I think Mm -hmm. you know being aware of our you know like I say again really our own privilege where we come from who we are you know, whether that's, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, um, whether we're working class or middle class, you know, all those factors, um, I think, you know, we don't talk about enough. But um, we certainly, you know, I bring it in every week because I've worked in the prisons and I always like to bring in a prison perspective. Because I think it's really important because often people in prison's voices aren't heard. But for me, that's where, um, you know, it's particularly Um, noticeable, I guess, Um, you know, some of the inequalities and some of the issues around complex trauma in particular. And often people, um, you know, we've talked about people with, um, you know, uh, diagnostic labels, but sometimes people aren't labelled, they're just labelled as having complex trauma. Do you think that we could get into a position in the future where complex trauma becomes another label pathologically?
2: Uh, it, we could do yeah i think it, it would help people you know uh, people who work in services to to remind them of the trauma aspect because i think we just we on a day-to-day basis we we lose yeah. that whether that would be it would be good or if it would just be another label which would be counterproductive i don't know um yeah. but i do think we need to have more more recognition of the social inequalities that you know the people who work with have experienced
1: over the years yeah brilliant thank you
5: Okay, we're, we're running out of time, and I'm, I'm going to turn to um, all of the panel and ask them for a for a closing statement. I just want to throw Danny Tadgett's name out there as somebody who is a survivor of trauma, a therapist, and a researcher, and has developed some, I think, really interesting ideas to escape that trap that Vanessa has has just raised, mm-hmm. and it, it does relate to. Um, What Nick was talking about, and the question about social constructionism, because I think what I take from social constructionism is is that the language that we have isn't neutral, and the things that we take for granted are actually brought into being by the language that we have. So we know people as survivors or mental patients because that's how we think and talk about them. Yeah. What what Danny Taggart does is he says that leads us easily into a trap of to think of ourselves as one thing and different people as another thing. Mm. And his is philosophical um, solution comes from a philosopher called Levinas, and it's to 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 demonstrate a duty to the other, which in in a way explodes this idea of otherness. But anyway, um, yeah. Yeah. it's time to sort of wrap up, so if we can if we can go in the order that we started with and maybe finish up with a few closing comments from for each of our brilliant guests here. So can I turn to Elisa first?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, um, just to sort of say I've really enjoyed uh, the, the discussions today and, and you know, it's really been helpful how everything's sort of interlinked. I think um, that the, the, the theme around language and in the importance of language and the sort of power behind language is really important. It's something that I've, I've always tried to sort of bring in my head and in my um, my own practice moving forwards. And I think sort of in terms of my review, I'd like to see more in uh, research around sort of understanding, you know, people's, people's traumatic history, thinking about how we talk about um, uh, and use language, not only in clinical care, but in research, I think it's
5: really important. Okay, so on over to
4: Nick. Um, I think um, there's many things that can be said, but if I, if I just have this one moment to say something, it would be just to voice my, my opinion um, that, that the, the, re, the concept of recovery um, should, should be reclaimed, should be rescued from colonization. And I know that because of the colonization and, and abuses of recovery, uh, that, that some people understandably want to get rid of the, the concept altogether. But I think that it's a hugely valuable uh, concept within mental health, and particularly within the addictions uh, side of things. Um, it's, it's a precious uh, label which can be used to uh, as a sign for, uh, for hope, really, uh, in, in otherwise seemingly intractable uh, circumstances. So that's the one main thing I would like to say. Thanks, thanks. And over to you, Sarah, for the last, last word.
3: <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed um, just listening in and learned a lot, actually, throughout the session. Um, my last word would be that um, I think the digital health as, as, um, as a tool offers some promise, but its digital health apps and other digital tools should not be used as a reason to exclude people from services. They should be used to give people a choice of another way to engage with interventions, but not to replace the clinical and kind of human element of our services.
5: Absolutely. That's yeah. brilliant. And I, I suppose what I've took from the from the whole of our discussion, and I, and I think it's it's been so engaging. We we could have you know carried it on for another hour at least. Is that you know, the panel and the people who are interacting with the panel are full of creative and imaginative ideas for what we might do better. And I just wanted to make sure that we understand that's not. The same is same. We think everything's really, really bad. I think there's really good stuff going yeah. on, but we can always do better, and we need that imagination to to do, you know, to to take us forward in that regard. So it's it's a hopeful stance, as as Nick said. I think hope is a great virtue. It's also the last refuge of Evertonians, and that's where I'd like to rest. That was a football joke.
3: Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on that. <laughs> I think the other thing I would like to say is please make sure um if you're watching to 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 have a look at um the presenters work on their videos it's so interesting. I mean I love what Sarah was doing with looking at mobile technology and, and absolutely not uncritically as well and that's what i really enjoyed about that one and as well nick is so good he's actually answering questions that are from ben so tomorrow's uh, panel lead before they're asked on recovery so that's that's how clued in he is and i think i've really learned a lot as well from melissa about understanding just the power of language you know because um, you see this all the time people say it's just words it's just words it's not when they're about you or somebody that you love they're not just words at all anymore so um, thank you ever so much for people who've been supporting this. I'll hand over to Vanessa now. And um, thank you very much, everybody. I really, particularly the students who joined in. Thank you. Yeah, I
1: think um, just really echoing what everybody said, I think it's great that we've um, started mh and with um, a subject about humanity. Um, and about inequality and I think it's brilliant that we've managed to um, bring this conversation online this year because of course you know we're in danger if we only have this conversation at conferences that only you know a small demographic of people attend that we're having a privileged conversation, aren't we? So it's brilliant that it's been online and that we've been able to share this conversation with everyone. And I hope that, you know, people who are watching online, either now or later, will join the conversation. You know, this isn't the end of it, it's the beginning of it. We're here for, you know, this week and next week and do keep, you know, tweeting us and commenting on Facebook. And we'd love to involve, you know, as many people as possible. And like Nikki says, it's been really interesting um, tonight we've had a great panel and Mick brilliant chairing tonight and some great questions there. Um, yeah. Fantastic, and I think that's it really, isn't it, for tonight? And we'll be back tomorrow. Yeah, so Good night, everyone. And good night. Just leave it now, mummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs>